Once you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Welcome back, listeners. This is Octavia's Parables, a podcast where we are reading chapter by chapter through Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents. This week, we are in Parable of the Talents, Chapter 17. I am your co-host, Adrian Marie Brown. I'm Toshi Regan. And do we have any news in the Octavia Butler sphere today? Uh... You know, God has changed. <laughs> That's all I got today. <laughs> all the time. You know, I think that this is in the Octavia Butler sphere, which is this news just came out that um, N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy is going to be made into films, and she is going to be doing the adaptations herself, Whoa. which is massive, massive, wonderful news. For anyone who hasn't read that trilogy, it is awesome. She is an incredible writer. Um, and I think it's very much in the line of stories that Octavia, you know, the kind of stories that Octavia writes for us, right? Massive, big, epic, wild mm-hmm. stories with lots of characters and relationships and shape-shifting and all the things. It's all in that trilogy. So that feels related. Congratulations, NK, for landing that. We are proud of you. We can't wait to That's watch awesome. what you come up with. Yeah. Yo, I um, should say Yeah. I should yeah, say, you say know, it. we have Parable of the Sower, <laughs> Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower opera um places mm-hmm. happening for two thousand twenty two. And uh there's gonna be some <gasps> it's announcements. Happening. It's happening. I don't know how it's happening. I don't know what the, the configurations of coming together will be. Um, but we have a long time to figure it out and evolution around it. But um I would say Boston, D.C., DMV, area, Ann Arbor. Um, we would definitely yes. be to those places next year. We're going to be we going to be going places. That's very exciting. Congratulations on mm-hmm. that. We're ready. I'm so excited <laughs> about it. I like we <laughs> the royal we are very ready. To see that show. Yeah, we are. Um, you coming? Again, you coming again? <laughs> I'm gonna be there. Um, has it changed? Are you continuing to shift and change it for each place, or is it kind of like we've landed this plane and now we're just gonna like bring it? I places? mean, it doesn't matter what we think. It always changes because you it know <laughs> I'm, I'll be doing my parable path with people and be collaborating, and the communities insist on it being specific you know and when i say insist it's like a it's just an obvious thing the the actual room shifts it then the you know the producers and the presenters like you know have an uh usually offerings that change it we just we just have become very adopt adaptable and then i feel very you know i feel very expanded by this process of doing you know we definitely mm-hmm. would like kicked one great song out to put in another great song because I was like, you know, we're actually, uh-huh. yeah, um, we become unafraid of that. We we actually are like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen here. That's, you know, yeah. we become excited about it. So, yeah, it's taking on the actual journey, which is like you don't necessarily know exactly what's coming around the corner, but you're uh, adapting and shaping as you go. Uh, that's so right. That's, that's beautiful. That's how we're moving. That's going to be a big year of parables. It's going to be a big. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a really big year. It's going to be a big <laughs> year a of parables. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to singing with everybody. And um, yeah, oh, this is where we're going. That I forgot. Champagne Urbana. Uh, <gasps> don't forget Champagne. Don't forget Urbana. Champagne Urbana. How <laughs> don't could ever I forget Champagne don't Urbana? Don't forget now. about it now. So, and there's some more, you know, on the outskirts. I can't say nothing yet, but yeah, we won't, we won't, we won't demand the secret locations, <laughs> the top secret locations yet. Um, you know, it's, it is interesting to start to think about like things reopening and where to go. And um, I feel like parables is something we're traveling for. So yeah, that's good news. We appreciate the people who travel. 
Yeah, that's great. All right. Here we are, chapter 17 in Parable of the Talents, if you're reading along with us. And Toshi, bring us in. Okay. From Earth Seed, the Books of the Living, all prayers are to self, and in one way or another, all prayers are answered. Pray, but be aware, your desires, whether or not you achieve them, will determine who you become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here we are um, with Larkin again, and uh, she is uh, wondering what her life would have been like um, if her mom had found her. And um, yeah. she, and this must just be, this This character is so incredible. I, I this, you know, 105th time of reading this. Uh, yep. <laughs> I'm like, she's so amazing. I'm just like, you know, I, I'm, I'm finding deeper, deeper um, empathy and um, for this journey and the way that Octavia set it up with this, this, um, this character, you know, and she is looking at, you know, looking at her life and looking at her mom life and mom's life. And she is doing that thing that she did a lot at the beginning of the book where yeah. she really was like, there's me and there's Earthseed. And yeah. that, that yeah. basically these are the two choices that she feels, you know, her mom had and she picked Earthseed, yeah. you know. So yes. she wonders if there would be, um, you know, she wonders if she would have been helpful or her weakness. And she says, Earth Seed mm. was her strength. No wonder it was her favorite. Mm. And as you read... It's so hurt. Yeah, it said hurt so much. And as you're reading this, you just, you know, you're seeing her story and you're seeing Lauren, what Lauren is doing to try to find her. And you're just like, oh my yeah. God, it's the ache is deep. So from the journals of Lauren Oya Alamina, Sunday, April 8th, 2035... Lauren has decided to go out on her own and she has left Georgetown. She's left her students. She's like left her, her room and she left some money with, and uh, some guns with Allie. So she'll have something to fall back on if she's robbed, always planning, always, um, you know, trying to do any, to do, to look ahead, you know, and um, she heads for the um, message cache that, um, they all decided where they would leave things. And so she yeah. she goes there and she's looking to see if anybody left any notes for her. And she got notes from Travis and Natividad and from Michael and Noriko and nobody's found their kids. So wow. um, it was good to know that, but nobody's found their children. However, they all have phones now. And so she left, she left um, a message and gave their phone numbers, the phone number of, um, you know, Harry and the phone number of, of herself, and then said Justin is with us. So I can imagine that people hearing about Justin is going to be very hopeful. Um, yeah. And she wrote the words, God has changed. And she says she found that she hasn't thought about Earthseed so much in the last few months. She says that she um, she knows Earthseed has helped her to survive Camp Christian so God has changed, God has changed, God has changed. And um, mm. she's lost none of her belief in all that she said. If you all remember, she had that really incredible conversation when Ben Cole asked her, like, what is the plan? Because she had decided mm-hmm. not to go to the, um, to was it Halstead, the, the other community. Yeah. And Ben Coley's yeah. like, all right, if I'm hanging with you, I need to know what the plan is. And so she had said everything. So the destiny is as significant as ever. And even though Acorn is gone, it was precious, but it wasn't essential. And I think Mm. that's so powerful. Um, Mm -hmm. So she's sitting there and she's trying to to think of a plan. She settled herself actually inside of of a redwood tree that's big enough to hold about three people. And (laughs) she's in there and she's thinking and trying to... to, uh, you know, get things going. And she, she also reflects on that. She, you know, uses the name Corey Duran and she says, and she starts to teach people. She uses some earthy lines to teach people. She's not actually trying to get them to be an earthy, but she just is saying all that you touch, you change or to get along with God, consider the consequences of your behavior or belief initiates in God's action or it does nothing or, kindness eases change and 
gives, mm-hmm. you know. And these are some of our favorites that, that we always see on the internet, like everybody sharing yes. and stuff. So she says some people are like, that's really cool. And other people are like, what you talking about? <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. You know, but the big thing yep. is that she is just like all of these verses, all of this, this earthy knowledge really needs the destiny. The destiny is essential to Lauren. Well, this is the thing. The the destiny is is essential, but she makes she gets to this understanding about like acorn is something that could be killed and taken away. And so she is she is mm-hmm. like making an adjustment to this idea of like, oh, we need to go somewhere and be there and plant all of our seeds in this place and then now we are arrived to we need to hold it, I think, in within ourselves and maintain our yes. trajectory to the destiny. So she right. says, yeah. I'm going to just read here. She says, I must find at least a few people who are willing to learn more and who will be willing to teach what they've learned. I must build not a physical community this time. I guess I understand at last how easy it is to destroy such a community. I need to create something mm-hmm. wide reaching and harder to kill. That's why I must teach teachers. I must create not only a dedicated little group of followers, not only a collection of communities as I once imagined, but a movement. And um, and mm-hmm. so she is she is reshaping her vision around that. But before she does any of that, she must find her child. And she goes out alone, and she says, "I know it's stupid." to travel alone and she had just in the last chapter been saying what is Harry doing traveling alone but um she mm-hmm. she, she now she's doing it and she just you know she has all of these fears around um what would you know Larkin grow up to be and how she would think about her family and would she think her mm-hmm. kidnappers were her family and um she'll start walking towards Eureka and I always like Eureka because when I was a kid, all the lesbians was always talking about Eureka. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, what's Eureka? You know, I'm in D.C. Like, what is this magic lesbian paradise of Eureka? (laughs) So, um, well, yeah, we do need to know. But that's not where (laughs) she is not going to a a lesbian paradise. (laughs) Um, She is walking with a 45 semi-automatic gun. And it's the same gun she had when she left Robledo. And in this chapter, there's a lot of reflection back to that old community, that things that she has with her and lessons that she learned from them and things like that. Um, one of the things that she notes is that there are so many sol- soldiers on the road. So, you know, yeah. don't forget, we had this big war with Canada right. and Alaska um, and we was losing. And so we backed you know, down <laughs> and it just petered out. And but all of these mm-hmm. soldiers have nothing to do. Um, they don't have jobs and they don't yeah. have things and but they have all their weapons and they are walking around very weaponized with nothing to do. Danger. Yeah, danger, 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 danger. And then this is also of course led to there being more slavers, that Jared's crusaders have joined the cougars of the world and collaring people and grabbing their kids and all of the other horrific behaviors and there's no there's nothing stopping that right now. So it's a it's a growing movement of more slavers, more soldiers, which is really men with weapons without a focus or a, a destiny, so to speak. So mm-hmm. this is a dangerous, dangerous world that she's walking around in. And she's working for, me, for meals and uh, sometimes a place to sleep. And she's just having this kind of like, you know, laborer's life as she tries to gather up um, information to see if she can find her child. This is a, a really awful state of existence. And again, I keep saying this because I just think it's important not to get used to it, to like really say it out yeah. loud because otherwise you just, yeah. you assume it, but you don't, you know, it's not activated. It's just like settling in somewhere. And, and her and Dolores had talked about this before she left and um, Dolores says that, you know, even though she knows what she's doing is, is dangerous, um, th- they set up a system so that Dolores will vouch for her. And I don't know if you mm. all remember this before, but Day Turner had, like, mm-hmm. taught Lauren about what the existence of being, like, 
especially a black man on the road, that it's very easy for you to get picked up and turned into a laborer. And one of the things you need is for someone to vouch for you if you get picked up in order to, yeah. to get out, which Day Turner didn't have. So Dolores will, is going to vouch for her for a fee because Dolores is a businesswoman. <laughs> um, but she yeah. says that, you know, she really understands what Lauren is doing. And she said, I do the same thing myself. I do all I could do. Goddamn these so-called religious people, thieves and murderers. That's all they are. They should wear the collar. They should roast in hell. So that is the line on that. And then we move to Sunday, April 15th, 2035. And Lauren is just steadily working, working for her food, working to, to get and navigate everything. How can she find out information, 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 and how can she stay alive and out of danger while she does it. And she has so many skills, it's very easy for her to find work. And she thinks that she is having herself look like, you know, a a kind of tall black man uh, moving around the world. And she is sleeping in this park. Um, She's sleeping in, you know, people's garages Whatever people will give her, she's she's using it. And she's also, you know, waking up achy and everything because she is, like, sleeping on floors and sleeping in trees and sleeping and everything. So eventually she is, there is a shelter, um, the Christian America Center on 4th Street. And someone says, you should just go there and go to sleep. And she is just like, mm. what the fuck? Like... <laughs> Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like the uh, she just cannot deal with it. Like, she is just like "Mm." a a lot of people say they avoid that. People disappear there, so there are moments when she is just like, I would just end up killing people if I went there. Like, she can't, you know, Mm -hmm. she can't. And then she's also terrified that someone will recognize her. But eventually. She is going to make her way to the Christian American Center. And um, she couldn't sleep there. And she was like, again, thinking about Day Turner's experience. And she just was like, I'm not going to sleep there. But she starts to um, to go. She can get meals and she can start to source information. Um, yeah. And um, she also has this, like, you know, nervousness that she might find some of the other kids. So if she found the other kids and she had to get the other kids, she knows she can't come back and be like, hi, has yeah. anybody seen this? <laughs> like, you know, black girl. Right, and right, so right, she's right. just like, that's hard because she's not going to pass up finding any of the kids. So she's just, yeah. you know, always thinking about multiple things at one time and trying to see the um, as much of a trajectory that she's in. And she goes there. They make this stew with this like vegetables and potatoes and it's it's flavored with beef, but there, nobody ever finds any meat. And people are like, yo, where's the meat? But she just couldn't, like, deal with it. it. You know, you have to imagine her just appearing as a very traumatized, like, inside yeah. person. Don't come near me. Don't talk to me. Don't touch me. Like, she's she is in a state of terror while she's doing yeah. this. She doesn't know, like, really how she looks to other, but she said they probably thought that I had, you know, some kind of, like, issues going on mentally. She just, she's too, she couldn't talk to anyone. She's, but she's terrorized. And so she focused on food. She just was like, I am going to eat food here. And that's what I'm going to do. And that was enough. That's all she could do. And she says, I have, I have never in freedom been so afraid. People edged away from me. I mean junkies and whores and thieves <laughs> edged away from me and um so she's really trying to like give you this very visceral when you read this you will see what how Octavia describes this and she wrapped her gun mm-hmm. she intentionally wrapped her gun in her spare clothes and put it in the bottom of her bag and the bottom of her pack because she was too afraid she would start shooting people she was too afraid that she would kill people so she put it down where it's really really, really, really hard to get to, that it would take her some effort. So she's even putting in a plan to keep her from killing people if she, like, gets triggered mm-hmm. too much. You know, I I don't know about you, but my gun would have been right on top of my bag. <laughs> like, it would have been the first mm-hmm. thing I had access to. Mm-hmm. 
So we know how good at this I would have been. But <laughs> just like, <laughs> you know, first day out. <laughs> just, <laughs> just like, well, sorry. sorry. you know. <laughs> failed the mission. <laughs> I, feel, I will fail incredibly. Um, I, I, could t- I can tell yeah. the truth about myself. Um, you got to know yourself. You got to know yourself. That's what it is. So, you know, she had gone back there a few times and then eventually she saw a man there who was in rough shape and then she realized that he was a version of herself when she first started showing up people were like don't go near him leave him alone and she was like he looked like me he was just eating and he looked like he would kill you if you came there and she imagines that's how she looked so she never learned about the um orphan children or jared's crusaders um you know, people have mentioned that they had kids, but she never learned anything. And so she went back for the third and last night, um, same food. They throw in different vegetables, and she's just kind of talking about this. And the one thing you have to do to get this meal is you have to listen to a sermon. And so after you eat, you know, they close the door so you can't leave, and then you got to listen to this sermon. And um, she wow. said... Wow. My first sermon, I couldn't remember if my life depended on it. The second sermon was about Christ curing the sick and being willing to cure us too if, on, if we only ask. The third was about Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the lay minister who delivered the third sermon was Mark. It was him, my brother, a lay minister in the Church of Christian America. In fear and surprise, she she just hit hit herself, and you know I wrote in big letters, "Yo, fuck Mark," (laughs) at the top of my page. Mark is just like Mark. I and I really empathize with Mark because I do think that Mark was was not given, you know, given what he needed at Acorn. So I really empathize with his journey, but this is horrible. And the thing is that she's worried that he's seen her, but she keeps herself down. There's so many different kinds of people, ethnicities, you know, of men there. Um, And so she's pretty sure he didn't see her, but she's concerned. And she takes a look, and then he is preaching, and he mentions that he had a sister who was steeped in sin, a sister who had been raised in the way of the Lord, but who had permitted herself to be pulled down by Satan. This sister had through the influence of Satan, done him great injury, he said. But he had forgiven her. He loved her. It hurt him that she would not turn from sin. It hurt him that he had had to turn from her. He shed a few tears and shook his head. At last, he said, Jesus Christ was your Savior yesterday. He is your Savior today. He will be your Savior forever. Your sister might desert you. Your brother may betray you. Your friends may try to pull you down into sin, but Jesus will always be there for you. All time, I'm gonna wait till my change comes. All When it was over, Lauren just like tries to get out and she had to figure out, you know, how to reach, um, reach Mark. And what she ends up doing is, you know, leaving a note and, and signing the note Bennett O. And she thought about writing Lauren O or writing her, you know, name Corey Duran, but that's, that's Mark's mother. So she felt like that was insensitive. And what's really interesting, Adrian, here is that she she actually doesn't assume that Mark turned them in. Exactly. I'm like I. She. I'm like, 
Mark's not safe. <laughs> like, I'm like, Mark's not safe. No. He thinks you're a sinner. And he, I mean, I think this, it's fascinating because that literally the sermon is him being like, family will betray you, but this, yes. this will not. This takes precedent. And yeah, yeah, it's shocking that it hasn't occurred to her that that's a possibility. It's really shocking. And I think, you know, also probably steeped in a lot of the trauma that she's experiencing um, but she yeah. uh, um, she gets a night inside of a garage. Uh, she chopped weeds and cleared trash for this man. He lets her sleep in the garage. There's actually an old, you know, toilet and a sink with running water. And it's a real luxury. She got to wash and she got to, you know, make a decent bed for herself. But, of course, she could not sleep. She mm. saw her brother and he was with those people. And she wonders if he had seen her. She just wonders what would happen if he had recognized her. And um, that's 17. Yeah. And I wrote at the end, Mark, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, it's everything. Yeah. Thank you. Mm. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, this storyline, I mean, it just keeps moving. <laughs> There's, like, so much happening here. So... I want to go back to Larkin, you know, this piece where she's like really imagining how her life would have been different if her mom had actually found her and saved her makes me have a question of what is a change in your life that you think would have made it very different? Mm. Um, Particularly if there's something where it's like, oh, if this fork in the road, you know, if, if I had gone a different way or if someone had found me or if someone had intervened on this harm or, you know, is there something like that that you're like, this, I think my life would have been really, really different. Um, and just take a moment, you know, with that, be with that, imagine what that different path might have looked like. And how do you come to be at peace with the life that you're in? Mm. Yeah. My second question is this tension between Earthseed and Larkin. As Larkin experiences it, as as Lauren experiences it, and if you remember back to your own childhood, did you ever feel in competition with your parents' work? You know, did you have the experience when you were younger of feeling like, oh, you know, especially if your parent was purpose-driven, cause-driven, you know, justice-oriented, right? Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you were in competition with that? And if you currently parent... How do you balance that mm-hmm. parenting work with your calling, or is it the the practice of your calling or deeply related, or do you feel that tension? That's such um, a good question. People always thought I was like they were like, you know, how do you and your mom do it? And yeah, I was like, I think this is like our fifteenth long life <laughs> journey together. Yeah. It's like we've been doing, yeah, you know, we've been doing yeah. it. I was like, wait, there is no. I I was like, first of all, she's. I mean, what is there to compete over? It is, we're yeah. just both who we are. But we both, re- we resisted people's desire to actually create, They either to, to mush us, so to be like, you know, when we did events yeah. together, nobody could say Bernice, Bernice and Toshi Regan. So they had to say both yeah. of our names separately. And then that people would try to mush our work. And we were just like, what are you doing? No. Like, that's, no. Just see us for ourselves. That's a good question. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And, you know, I feel like I I hear it from people who grow up with movement parents often, where they're like, yeah, I felt (laughs) like set to the side or, you know, Mm -hmm. that the vision that they were working for was more important than, you know, the raising process. Mm. Um, but sometimes I look back at that and I think that a lot of that has to do with feminism, like, and, and patriarchy and like where the balance of child, um, raising was traditionally held. So it's like that particular sense of like, Oh, this, this person who in other families, I see their mothers with them. And in mine, I see my mother, you know, being a feminist right at the, as this is really just in the new stages, you know, these past few generations are still relatively new stages of this shift. So I see that, you know, I think many of us experience like fathers being less present, but because that was also socialized as a norm. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's fascinating how as those gender dynamics shift, that that also impacts what happens inside of movement and who, who feels like, 
you know, they're getting enough parent time. <laughs> and I see this parent struggling with this all the time. Yeah. You know, parents in my life, I'm just sort of like, it's not a thing where you love something more or less. Or it's ne- it's just like, this is my child. Like, it's unquestionable and unconditional love. And there's myself, you know, there's my call. And I think it's, I think it's a beautiful thing to start to be, I feel like in more and more community where we're trying to hold that, that it's like everyone gets to be themselves and we're raising kids right. <laughs> and we're figuring out what that looks like. The next question is really about earthseed and acorn and like really earthseed going beyond what acorn could hold or could sustain. A question I have for listeners is, do you have any ideas that you hold that feel more precious to you than the institutions that currently carry those ideas mm. or are currently associated with those ideas? Mm. Right? What ideas do you hold that feel more precious than the institutions that are currently associated with it? And, you know, I think about this a lot for people of faith. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm just like, y'all's institutions can be kind of, you know, trash, <laughs> but the ideas are often love. Yeah. Like big love and big faith and big surrender and, you know, transformation and justice. And like there's massive ideas that I'm like down with those. But the institutions are where those human tendencies and patterns of harm play out. So just being being thinking about that, you know, maybe the institutions are too vulnerable to hold the ideas. Maybe the institutions um, are too stuck in old ideas to hold a new idea. Right. I think nonprofits get stuck in this. It's like we're dreaming of freedom, but we're practicing incarceration, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, mm. So. Mm-mm-mm. And then a question I have, which I think we're in the time of vision. And I am so moved by Lauren, like getting to watch her go through the process, the interior process of recognizing that what she's trying to build is not just a pattern, a network but a movement. Mm. You know, she's like, what I am creating is actually really huge. And so I want to ask our listeners, do you hold a movement-sized vision within you? Mm-hmm. Do you hold a movement-sized vision within you? And I love that she's holding this vision while working in disguise, while being a day laborer, while being homeless, while um, or houseless, while in transit. And I think this tied in question is who do you view as someone who could hold a movement size vision or who do you view as someone who could hold destiny? And particularly when you see people who are doing uh, physical labor, when you see people who are doing that kind of, of, of work of cleaning and gathering and, you know, breaking things up and building things. Do you see those people as people of destiny? Mm people who could be holding movement-sized vision. Like, hint, hint. You should. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You should. Yeah. Now, the next question is around this juxtaposition of the war with the slave culture that's developing and the violence that's developing. And I think we're in a question right now as a society which – I want to name here is how do we relinquish the socialization and the work of violence and control? So much of our societal structure is around controlling each other, controlling the borders, controlling what we think of as our safety zones, protecting our families, whatever it is, but doing it all through the acts of violence. And so we have these periods of war where then people come back from those wars and bring that violence home along with all that breaks when we're separated from each other while going through traumatic events, along with the grief for all the people who don't come home and along with the shame for a lot of people once they're there and realize what they've been Mm. forced into. And then they come home with nothing clear to do necessarily, not necessarily met and taken care of, not necessarily held and given possibility to return to their humanity in some way. And so then we see the the wave of domestic violence incidents. And then we see, you know, those folks moving into policing, mm-hmm. those folks moving into, you know, probation and corrections officers and other work. 
And so it just becomes this flowing river of violence through our society. And how do we relinquish our our sense that that creates safety? Yes. I do think the defund the police movement is a movement of healing. And, I do you know, and I think that there's that, that why is there so much effort and money and power going towards making sure people, you know, in particular cisgendered men, in particular cisgendered yeah. white men have access to, to weapons, you know, to guns yeah. and like guns way past the capacity of like, well, I want to be able to defend myself in case. But why do you need that? Why do you need to hold on to it? And I think I, I talked about, there's many, many stories, but I think I talked about that, like the singer Tony Bennett, you know, talking mm-hmm. about like, yeah, you know, he when he, he when he was like, you got to go. And they're like, you're going to go to war. And they gave him a choice of like, which one you want to go. And then whatever he said, they picked the opposite. And then in a very short amount of time, he was 18 years old. He was on the front lines. Um, yes. And, you know, fighting for his life. And what um, and what he said and what a lot of people have said is this is the lowest form of human existence. This is the, yeah. you know, and it's the lowest form of, any, I think, any species. Like, we just puts us at the bottom of everybody. So, I, you know, people are very mm. nervous to say defund the police, even um, Obama. I think defunding mm. the police is, is a small part of the whole thing it's like no we're going to challenge this but i really hope that people find the you know the courage in this at this point in our existence to really introduce and sustain the idea of a healing movement that does not Mm -hmm. contain these weapons that that where conflict is is actually resolved in a multiple kind of multiple kind of ways and unless you need to take over other people's places, like unless you need to like actually enslave people, unless you need to do, you know, put your hands where they don't belong. Like, why do you need such weapons? Uh, you know, why do you need these weapons? Like these weapons come out of That's right. these weapons come out of like the most horrific thing. And, and we all don't need them if we stop these behaviors. And I think that's that the defunding and redistributing. And we're just talking about, you know. We're just talking about money. We are. We are. I mean, there's that piece of it. And I think, you know, what you're talking about, which is like Tony Bennett is basically a veteran against war. And there's so many incredible groups of veterans against the war. I remember the first time I came across the work of the Iraq veterans against the war and just feeling like, okay, there are... There are people who really come from this culture, who know what it's like to get pulled into it, who know what it's like to feel like it's the only option, who come out of that space and are like, I still have a life ahead of me and I want to find a different relationship to it. And I think that some of the greatest leadership, thought leadership and practice leadership amongst us is in those populations of people who are like, I made this choice, I am a veteran and I have come out of this space and being able to connect that to defund the police, being able to connect that to a real um, nuanced and intelligent conversation around the Second Amendment, being able to connect that to um, how we resolve conflict with each other, being able to connect it all back to abolition. It's it's like it really is a massive cultural shift that's being uh, advanced on so many different front lines right now. And being exposed as necessary in so many ways right now. So I think we're in a time, I hope we're in a time where it's kind of like the death throes of this way of being, that we're starting to recognize something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I see it even in the way people are rejecting the militarism of Israel. The You know, that hyper-militarized nation. It's like us and Israel and a few other places are really like holding this particular line. And I, I hope that we are at the end of our success in that holding, yeah. if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Like, I really hope that we are in a place where whether it's that we shift our values or that we become post-nationalist, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that we're really like the nation state is perhaps inherently um, violent as long as it, as long as it necessitates a domination to exist, you know, perhaps we can advance ourselves beyond that. So think about this, be with your group around this. Think about, again, how this shows up in your own life. I know for me, 
you know, I'll be very vulnerable here that going through the pandemic brought to the surface my control shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like I want to be, I feel justified in being absolutely in control of every single thing that's happening around me. But I'm not actually in control of everything that happens around me. I'm not in control of the other people around me. But I notice that that's showing up, that like I will control things and if someone crosses my boundary, I will punish them. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it starts there. It starts small. It starts intimate. It starts in your own life. Always these things start small. And then they grow into something that feels like, you know, how do I protect myself? At, you know, like how can I be mm-hmm. safe? So examine where where is control showing up in you? What can you do to soften your own grip? Right? Um, two more questions I have, and then I think we I think we can see where we're at. One is this one of mine versus ours. What do you think of as being your own? And what do you think of as being collective? And this shows up in this chapter in two ways that kind of flow with each other. One is vision, right? That Lauren is holding this vision of Earthseed and recognizing that in order for it to really reach what it's meant to reach, it has to become an ours vision. Like there has to be other people who are studying it, practicing it. Um, beyond what she's been able to achieve. So there's something where she's aware that like, I have to take this thing that is mine and make a a big hours around it. But then this really feels relevant around the children question that, you know, she's really having to reckon with, do I try to save our children or do I wait until I can save my child? Mm. And how do you hold this? Who are the children that are yours? Who are the children that are ours? What society, what community shapes around a world in which the children belong to the individuals versus the children belong to the community? And then my my final question, as I see a gun-toting, gun-waving Toshi coming in the Christian America <laughs> space, <laughs> is how do you mitigate your righteous and perhaps murderous rage? Yeah. You know, I feel like so many people have said this over the years, you know, James Baldwin's talked about this, Tony Morrison wrote about this, like so many people have said, the rage is so righteous, the rage makes sense, the rage is a logical reaction to what's going on, and it's not always the strategic choice, given the power dynamics that we're in, it's not often the strategic choice. You know, what Lauren is trying to achieve here is to have a place to sleep and to find out information and to take on a shape that doesn't align with being able to act from that rage. So her mitigation is to wrap her gun all the way up, tuck it into the middle of things where she cannot easily access it, knowing that she's going into a space where the righteous side of her rage would be justified in anything she did. Right? These are the people that justified and were complicit in every violation that has happened to her community and her family and her hmm. So what do we do? We're walking around every day, like having to, you know, drive by the police who we know have killed our people, right? What do we do when we're moving through these institutions that are mistreating and abusing us? What do we do? How do we deal with that? How do we mitigate the righteous rage? And when I say mitigate, it doesn't mean disappear it, right? In some ways, it's almost how do we harness it? towards destiny? How do we harness it towards something that takes us beyond these conditions? Not just the short satisfaction of revenge, but the long satisfaction of complete and total transformation, making these conditions impossible. Yes. Yeah. Like, I feel like I, it's, it's taken me a long time to understand the power of anger and rage. I think it's only with the harnessing of that rage in addition to everything else that we can get to that transformative mm. space. But, you know, I I was reading this and I was thinking like, I want to send Lauren a copy of Love and Rage by Lana Rod Owens and just be in conversation with her that honors her rage and how she's strategizing around it. Yeah, I I feel that. I mean, I also think about people who had a nonviolent you know, practice in a really violent situation. And so part of their practice was withstanding violence, like physical violence and the violence of of being incarcerated. And 
um, yeah. and all of the other things. I remember I was a certain age and, you know, all of these kind of civil rights activists were like dying in their 40s, um, mostly yeah. men. And of course, I think about my dad and it, the the struggles that he had in his life. And, yeah. and so like when we're we're looking at the way that you, you know, evolve from like great harm and also have made a decision that like actually a way for us to be successful is to withstand like the great harm we know is coming. Like we're going to break laws, you know, we're going to, and the law gives them the right to like actually do all of these things. Um, and we know that like it's very rare that anyone will be held accountable for their abusing those lines. So we really, you know, I just I just okay. got asked to clear some music for my mom, and it's a a story on um, on the um, freedom rides, and okay. and it's this you know I'll I'll link when it comes out. It's not out yet, but it's a I think a museum is doing it, and they have like people narrating it. And it was so chilling because the the first person was talking about like how they were, you know, how they got on the bus and how they had like a National Guards person on the bus with the bayonet out. They had like police on either side of yeah. them. They had all of this stuff. And it was like, we were feeling pretty good. And then they could like get to the next place and like all of that disappeared and everything happened to people. So it's, 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 yeah. it's such a, a thing to walk into the place that you know is dangerous to get someplace else like that's you know how we're going to get to it we're going to walk right right into where we know not only is it dangerous but they literally like legally or not have the right to inflict danger and inflict violence on your body i i just have no you know, I always wonder, like, if I have to make that decision, can I do it? And I just never know what the answer is. You know, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it feels so circumstantial. It feels so, like, you know, once you've gone through so much, right, there's certain things. It's like, I would only do this to find my child. Right. I would only risk this, you know, for survival's sake. And I love, you know, this idea of, like, yeah, what – how do we navigate it? You know, I think there's a lot of popular culture things right now that are in this, you know, Handmaid's Tale, which is like basically taking our stories of enslavement mm-hmm. and, and putting them into the realm of like feminism. Yes. You know? That's how I look at, that's how I watch that is I'm like, yeah, that, that's what our ancestors went through. Mm-hmm. And and like, how scary would that be for, for these white women? You know? But it also is like, they're doing a beautiful job mm-hmm. of of really building up the the peace around how angry we actually get in the face of the trauma and the assault and everything that happens to us and then how do we navigate right and how do we survive and i'm brought to mind i'm thinking of Lawrence McEwen who is an irish northern irish uh, freedom fighter northern ireland freedom fighter who we got to spend some time with and he talked about this, the, the Bobby, he was like in community with Bobby Sands and they talked about the, our revenge will be the laughter of our children. Mm -hmm. Right. That it's like actually taking the rage into and harnessing it such that it can, can, it can completely transform the conditions so that the next generations do not have to suffer in the ways that we suffered. Mm. That is the true revenge. That is the true response. That is the true beyond. Mm -mm -mm. Um, And we're always heading there. And there's there's thoughts about Marcus, but I didn't have a question about him yet. I feel like he, there's more coming with him, and so I'm gonna let that simmer. <laughs> you know, I'm just sort of like there's there's so much coming with him. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Uh, but I'm just I like let's just be that. in the rage. I feel you on that. <laughs> yeah. Oof. All right, y'all. That is our episode. Um, we're. As always, really grateful that you're joining us. And uh, Octavia's Parables is co-hosted by myself, Adrian Marie Brown, and Toshi Regan. We are produced by Kat Aaron, and our show art is by Krista Franklin. Our music for Octavia's Parables is Always See the Stars, written and performed by Toshi Regan. God is Changed, written by Toshi Regan, performed by Toshi Regan and Bernice Johnson Regan. And Job 
uh, performed by Toshi Regan and Bernice Johnson Regan. And you can find us on Twitter at Oparables. Sustain our show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Oparables. Or readingoctavia.com. Oh, no, not or. <laughs> or you can visit <laughs> readingoctavia.com for our transcripts. I'm like, woo. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> for when we elevate right. our like, podcast. Exactly. I'm like, we love our website. <laughs> we love when you support the show. That's all. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Another one down. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is all that you touch, you change. All that you change, change is you. The only last thing you will really change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, change is you. The only last thing you will really change.